Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today Rado rounds up the month of June 2020, and it was a bit slow as months go. Uh, Jen and I only played 15 new games, which is a lot, I know. It's like a new game every other day, and yet somehow I feel like I failed you because I should have covered more. But I have an excuse. I almost broke my leg. I was walking the dogs down a very, very steep incline, very slick grass, and I was wearing flip-flops that have absolutely no grip. And I took a step, went out from underneath me, and next thing you know, I really tore up my left ankle, and I could barely make it back home. And for the next few days, I was pretty much... I was going to say bedridden, but really more couch-ridden. And eventually, I was able to get around using my mom's walker. And a couple days ago, I switched over to a cane. And as of today, if I'm slow and steady, I can actually move around the house. Uh, So that's kind of put a crimp in the normal Rado run-through activities. And Jen, my wife and only gaming partner, has been gone for a sizable portion of the month as well. So those two things combined... Well, like I said, 15 games under the circumstances ain't too bad. Uh, And I'll try to pick up the pace to make up for it, because there's a couple games I should have gotten covered that I failed at. If you always want to know what's coming, just go to comingsoon.rado.com. And at the beginning of the month, right now in fact, you can go and check out what's coming for the next four weeks. But enough about that. You may have noticed that the uh, title of this says there's 17 games to talk about instead of 15. And that is true because, of course, I got to talk about the game that Shay and Ryan, each of them, also covered a game this month. And hey, they're contributors now. I'm starting to wonder, should I actually bring them on so they could talk about it? But that would require a whole bunch of coordination. And hey, I watch their videos, and so I can actually talk about what I think about what they said. So before we get to the countdown, as always, I'm going to count down my top 15, the only 15 new games we played. Let's talk about what Shay played and filmed this month. Mini Rogue, which uh, was a paid Kickstarter preview. Uh, and I got to say, folks, we got word about this game very late. Uh, it was practically about to launch, and I did not have time to cover it. Uh, and I kind of wish I had because it looks like a lot of fun. Fortunately, Shay was able to step up, got it done, and yeah, this game truly captures the uh, the the feel of classic, uh, not exactly text-based, but ASCII character-based adventure games called roguelikes, uh, you know, like uh, NetHack and whatnot, but in board game format. It's a very quick, very fast playing. It's a solo-only game, but go check out Shay's run-through uh, if you have any interest in classic ASCII character, NetHack-style um, dungeon crawls, because this really does a lot of cool, fun stuff. It, true, it does feature Roll to Resolve uh, you know, as well, which normally I'm not a fan of, but this game is so fast, and it can be so brutal. Uh, I think I probably would have found myself enjoying it anyway. I certainly enjoyed Shay's run-through, and like I said, I'm I'm regretting not having gotten the chance to run it through myself, because it looks like a lot of fun, and Shay definitely had a good time playing it too. So there was Shay's uh, mini-rogue run-through, and then we had Ryan who did a rules run-through for Monumental, because its first expansion is on Kickstarter right now. 
And I have to admit, they originally contacted me to do a run-through for it, and I passed because while this game is a deck builder, it's a civilization-style deck builder, and it has such a cool core idea, the fact that um, you have your cards from your deck get put out in a grid, and you activate all the cards in a row or a column simultaneously, and you can get really interesting combo chains, and then you refill the grid and keep going. I think that is brilliant. I so love that idea, and I would so love to see that in a game that is something other than monumental, because the other half of this game is a dudes on a map trying to deploy your forces all over the place so I can kill your forces and take what you have built and destroy it or own it myself until you steal it back and lots of back and forth. And ah, so half of this game I am head over heels in love with. The other half of the game I could care less about. Now, what I didn't realize is there's a solo mode. And if they told me up front there's a solo mode, I probably would have covered it because I so want to experience this game. Again, go check out Ryan's video. Uh, you know, it's not a traditional run-through like what I normally do, but it does a great job of capturing the feel of what this game offers. And if you have any interest in deck building with a crisscross with a cross of, you know, you know, spreading your forces around a randomly generated map and lots of gorgeous plastic minis, it's definitely worth checking out. Okay, and good job to Shay and Ryan. I know Ryan will be back in July. I don't think Shay has anything lined up right yet, but we're always working on it. So hopefully you'll see more of those guys soon. But with all that out of the way, folks, let's now move on to my number 15 uh, of the month. It is Minecraft Builders and Biomes. And now, I should say, don't be fooled by the low rating. You know, it's, this is like the lowest rated game of the month. This is still a solid 7. And in all honesty, as I said in the run-through, this game has almost no right to be as good as it is because it is based on a monstrously popular video game, you know, arguably the most successful video game in history, Minecraft, and it takes the aesthetic of that very blocky, pixely game and really transcribes it over. This is a game where you are drafting uh, tiles to build into your own little biome to complete a whole bunch of set collection objectives. And it is surprisingly good. You would think this is just a quick knockoff cash grab uh, tie-in that you know, uh, you know, has no spark or originality or anything. But I gotta say, folks, I was very impressed. There's a fair amount of depth. And if you have kids who love Minecraft and you would like to play a board game with them and pull them away from that computer screen, that's what this game does. And the impressive thing is you can potentially enjoy it as well. The only reason this doesn't rate higher is because one of the elements of the game is, you know, there's a, a lot of focus on gathering resources to build buildings to complete objectives and whatnot. All that stuff is great. There's also a fair bit of focus on fighting bad guys. And while it isn't roll to resolve, it is still the notion of you've got a bunch of tiles, you draw three, and hopefully you draw the good tiles in your hand that represent your super ability to attack and not the bad tiles so you can actually take out these monsters lifted straight out of Minecraft. And it's incredibly luck-swingy. And even though it's a cool core system, the idea that over time you get more weapons, you add them so you have a better chance of drawing good tiles when you fight, it's still very, very luck-swingy. And even that wouldn't be too bad if there was just some concept of, of uh, mitigation for when 
you know, in spite of your best efforts, it blows up in your face and you waste a turn trying to fight a monster and you just end up falling behind because I did everything right and it still fails. I talked about this in the final thoughts and I think a really easy way to fix it, but I'm not here to fix games. And so I don't think it'd be a problem for families looking for a game to play with kids. But for me and Jen, we wanted more control than the game ultimately gave us because of the incredibly luck-swingy combat. And so that's why Minecraft comes in, or Minecraft Builders and Biomes comes in at number 15. But like I said, don't be fooled by that rating. Check out the run-through. You might be surprised. I definitely was. Then we move on to number 14, which is Back to the Future dice through time. And actually, there are two Back to the Future-themed Euro-style cooperative games that came out, um, you know, basically within this two-month time period. This one, and I forget the name of the other one, although it is on the way, and I'll probably be covering it in the coming months. But I gotta admit, of the two, this is the one that was really interesting to me, because it truly captures the spirit and the, the full scope of the Back to the Future trilogy. There are four time zones, um, you know, uh, 2015, 1985, 1955, and 18... Uh, was it 1885, I think, if I recall correctly? And you are in your DeLorean constantly jumping back and forth through time, trying to make right what once went wrong. Finding all the artifacts, or the items, uh, you know, the props, basically, from the movie, and trying to get them back into their proper time zone. Why is Marty's electric guitar in 1885. It should be in 1985. And until you get everything straightened out, the fabric of space-time is unraveling. And if we run out of time, we lose. The thing that's really brilliant about this game that I absolutely love is the use of time, because we're working together. Um, and every round we roll dice, those dice determine what we can do, because we can spend them to get engaged in all kinds... Of, all the dice have multiple uses. And I might have rolled dice that you are desperate for. I don't need this Doc Brown uh, brains or you know this uh, energy lightning bolt die. But you do because um, you're heading over to a, a, a mission that has to be solved using those dice. So what I can do is I can go further back in time. If Say, if you're in 1955, I can go back to 1885, drop that die off, and it will ripple forward in time so that you can pick it up on your turn. It's a simple little system that just works wonderfully. It's maybe the best implementation of time travel I've ever seen in a board game, truly using time in the way that was used in the movies. And, oh man, and the game is just full of all the best moments from the movies, and it's, it's a blast. Why does it come in so low? I gotta say, folks, this could have been a top five of the month for me, quite frankly. I have one problem. The difficulty level is, for our taste. Uh, it's it's not challenging enough. Uh, you know, the game tends to start out really, really easy, and over the course of the game, gets built up, build up, and by the end, you're like, oh my gosh, we've got to really race because we're, you know, it feels like the Back to the Future movies. You know, at the in that final act is when everything goes crazy, and that's kind of how it works here. I get that, but I want more pressure and more threat right from the get go. And you know, the game, like I said, is pretty easy laid back. Now, don't judge by my run through. If you watch my run through, I got an insanely improbable lucky series of die rolls and card draws. So, But even still, when things are going normal, Jen and I wanted more challenge, more threat, more tension. Plus, we wanted the board to tighten up. As a two-player game, there's this concept of players cannot be in the same place at the same time because it rips a hole. Marty, never go and you know, see yourself. You know, that, all that kind of stuff. In a two-player game, it just never happens. And I think there's a really good solution. There's a great house rule 
tool that could fix it. I talked about it in my run-through. And interestingly, I know the developer said, hmm, that's a good idea. So maybe there'll be an official rule coming down the road for tightening up the board in a two-player game because this game has everything going for it. For me, it just needed a couple little tweaks to push it into that upper stratosphere. I have to admit, I'm still on the fence. I might keep it just to wait and see if they are going to tweak it um, for two-player gaming just to up the difficulty, up the challenge, and up the threat. Tighten the board. But I haven't gotten a chance to play it at higher player counts. I suspect it would be fantastic. But uh, even still... Man, I was just grinning ear to ear the entire time we were playing it, constantly busting out quotes and singing Huey Lewis songs. And, you know, it, it, it's just absolutely adorable, charming, fast playing. And uh, if you love Back to the Future it's, it, and you like cooperation and you like rolling dice, it might be worth checking out Back to the Future Dice Through Time. Then we've got number 13, Abandon All Artichokes. Which is a very charming little deck builder. Although not really. Uh, you start with a deck with nothing but artichokes in it. And artichokes are bad. You want to abandon all your artichokes. You're trying to get rid of them. Because the first player uh, at the beginning of their turn to draw... You know, like any deck builder, you draw up all the cards you're going to have for that turn. And if you draw no artichokes, you win. So this is just a race to get rid of those artichokes. And we're doing that by deck building. Um, you know, drafting other cards adding to our deck, and then on subsequent turns, using them to manipulate things, swap cards with other players, and get rid of those artichokes. It's fun, it's fast, and in all honesty, I was shocked how much we enjoyed this. I thought we were, I was just going to come to you and say, yeah, this is a nice, lightweight, gateway, family, deck builder. Could play it under any circumstances. I don't know that Jen I would want to ever play it again because it's just too lightweight for us. There is something about the insanely high charm factor of this game that when we were done, Jen said, yeah, we should keep that. I want to keep that game. I would definitely play that game again. And I had to agree with her. I would too. This rate's surprisingly high. I mean, I know it's only coming in at number 13, but considering how incredibly lightweight it is, this would be something that Jen and I would j normally jettison in a heartbeat. But this one, uh, you know, the rhythm of it, it's just so fast and so fluid and just so charming. Even has a little bit of take that in it too. But, you know, everything about this game is just the bee's knees. And the only reason we're not keeping it is because we're giving it to Jen's uh, sister's family because she knows it will be a perfect fit for them um, to abandon all artichokes. Man, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Number 13. Number 12. Moving right along is the King's Forge. This is a game that came out a long, like in 2014, I think. And since then, I believe it has had five or six expansions. It has gotten a lot of love over the year, lots of reprints from different publishers, and I've never gotten around to playing it, but I finally got to the table because it had worked its way all the way up to the Rado Request Geek List. And so like, okay, I got a used copy of it that was all beat to heck. Jen and I sat down and played it, and we're like, this is really good. Uh, which uh, was very surprising because really, at its heart, two-thirds of this game is a card draft where um, there are all these different means that we can harvest resources out of the town that we are in. We're blacksmiths trying to make uh, roll dice to uh, fulfill recipes to basically forge weapons and jewelry and stuff like that. And we're racing to do the most because the first player to cross a certain threshold just instantly wins. 
So, but uh, most of the game is drawing these cards, which we can then operate by using our dice to do all kinds of things, like um, transfer dice into other sorts of dice, or um, you know, manipulate things, uh, even occasionally take stuff from your opponent and swap with them and, and whatnot. But after all the card drafting is done, and we've got a collection of the dice we will actually use to try to forge stuff, we then roll our dice, and it's kind of interesting, it's almost kind of like an auction. If I roll all the dice to forge this uh, sword, I could grab it. But then, after my turn is done, if you roll dice to, to forge the same sword, but your dice are a higher value than mine, you take it from me. So it's like I said, it's kind of a, a dice roll to resolve auction that's really interesting. There's a lot to like here. Now, at the end, everything I just said about Artichoke... Um, I, I applies here, and I do think this is a bit too lightweight for us, and the take that is a bit too much for us, and so I don't think we're going to keep it. Although the most, I think the most recent expansion, King's Forge Gold, from what I've read about it, it really introduces several key new notions to the gameplay that might fix any problem we have with the game. But I mean, we definitely enjoyed our time with it. But um, and I would say it's better then abandon all our chokes, which is why it rates higher, just in kind of an objective metric. But still, for this to keep this game, I would definitely feel the need to go out and get some of the expansions for it. Uh, whereas Artichokes, um, you know, I mean, again, they're, they're both you know, they're both lightweight, they're both fast, they're both very gateway-ish style games, and uh, with great production values, sharp designs. King's Forge, I think, because I don't want to go out and seek out a whole bunch of expansions for it on top of it, probably won't keep it. But still was very surprised. Did not expect to dig it, but we really had a good time with the King's Forge. And that's number 12. Then we go on to number 11, Hokkaido, which is the sequel to Honshu, which I did a run-through for quite a while ago. And if you go back and watch my original run-through for Honshu, you'll get two-thirds of this game. Because really, at its heart, we are taking cards that have a grid of all types of uh, environments, and we are laying them down, stacking them on top of, burying them underneath other cards to try to create different layouts. You know, big villages or um, places that generate resources, so we can use those resources in other places. Lots of different ways to score points. Um, you know, a nice bit of variability with different with the changing objectives every time you play. But just this idea of this card tableau melding, which we've seen in lots of games recently. Uh, and again, Honshu is one. <sighs> uh, uh, Sprawlopolis, Circle the Wagons, uh, Hanging Gardens. There's so many of them now. And um, Hokkaido and Honshu are really great examples. Maybe not the best one. I mean, at this point, the best one by far is Walking in Provence, which, oh my gosh, Walking in Provence is so good. But Hokkaido is very good as well. And here's the interesting thing. It's a sequel to Honshu, and if there was one problem we had with Honshu, it um, basically mixes that card melding with uh, trick-taking, which was an interesting idea, but I don't really think drew us in enough. Hokkaido still has the card melding, but replaces the trick-taking rules with card drafting rules. I'm like, yes, this is so much better, so much more engaging. And it's interesting. The rules say you can apply the card drafting system. back. It's backwards compatible to Honshu. And the trick-taking, if you like that in Honshu, you can apply it to Hokkaido. So Hokkaido adds other stuff too, like more complex rules for building. There's like a mountain that cuts your world in half and stuff like that. Um, but 
I, on the whole, I definitely like this more. My only problem is they have a special two-player specific extra set of rules for the draft that inter- makes it a little bit more hate drafty, which we didn't really mind in theory. But in practice, it, it, it made the game a bit overburdensome, and I wish the draft had been done a different way. Just, hey, you know what? There's a certain number of them on display. We each take turns, and then new ones come out. Something like that, because... The whole, oh, I um, pick one for myself, then I draw, and now i got to pick one to get rid for you. A lot of times, I just have no idea what to get rid of, and it slows the rhythm of the game down. I've seen that used to great effect in other drafting games, but here, it it felt a bit out of place. And so that's why Hokkaido doesn't rate as high as it otherwise might. Still, a keeper. Definitely. We are totally in Keepersville now. And that was uh, number 11, Hokkaido. Then we go on to number 10. Metro X. Now, this is a roll and write from Hisashi Hiyashi, who at this point, you know, I think I have declared in the past, I have declared Hisashi Hiyashi the Steffenfeld of Japan, uh, because he just keeps putting out really stellar design after stellar design. His high watermark to date is um, Yokohama. But uh, Metro X is a very surprisingly clever little roll and write. Uh, well, I shouldn't say roll and write. It's a flip and write because we're drawing cards instead of rolling dice. It's a bingo style thing where we're all, every round, seeing what card got drawn and using that to fill in more and more Metro train tracks. And this game is surprising. On the surface, it looks really simple, but there's a lot of hidden depth and puzzliness to the overall approach you have to take because you um you know if, if you draw five okay well I've got to pick one line and move forward five steps and what you're trying to do is move as far forward on all these lines as you can if you can get it to the end of the line and fill them up that'd be ideal it's impossible to get them all done so you might think oh well I'll just put the five in the line that's closest to the end but um, what you want to do is use that five on a line that will create the opportunity for you to skip because these lines all crisscross against each other and if I'm trying to fill up a line that overlaps some other line and that previous line has already been filled up that means when I'm filling the new line I get to skip over things and get much more efficient that's a bit it may sound a bit complex. It is a bit. It's a bit hard to get your head around this game. Although once you get it, it's like I said, it's surprising. The hidden depth in Metro X. My only complaint about it is, if I recall correctly, there is only like a a uh, intro and a slightly more advanced board. I would have liked to have seen just hey, forget about the variable complexities. Although the subtlety is is pretty. It is subtle, the difference between the advanced and advanced. I just would rather seen a whole bunch of different boards uh, because they're dry erase markers. And so, you know, I'd like to have a different one than you. That's a minor complaint because overall, I was very impressed uh, with Metro X. No surprise. Hisashi Yashi knocks it out. And I just realized it's my number 10. My number 10 is Metro 10 or Metro X. Then we're going to move on to number nine, Role Player Adventures. Now, this is by far, I think, the biggest game I covered this month. This was a monster. And uh, I've been so excited about it ever since I heard about it. Uh, you know, And in fact, this was in, I think, my top 10 most anticipated games of the year when I made that list back in January. Because this takes... This is a sequel, or a spinoff, I guess you'd say, from Role, role Player which is in my, I think, my top 30 games of all time. My top 30 or my top 40. Role Player is brilliant. I've actually done a few different run-throughs of it. You can go check those out. But 
What Roleplayer does is the entire hour-long game is you is doing all kinds of cool puzzly dice drafting to create a fantasy adventure Dungeon and Dragon style character. And then the game is over. And for years people have said, well, I want to take those characters on adventures. Now you can. You can take them on Roleplayer Adventures. This is a big sprawling game with a ginormous, one of the, probably the most ambitious narrative book-based adventure game that's ever come out. Because its biggest focus is tons of opportunities for the world to respond to your choices. You are every time you make a choice, you're constantly writing down keywords, uh, you know, that will affect you later on in a given adventure. Constantly taking uh, what they call title cards that will affect you in future adventures. The choices you make will come back to help or haunt you later on, and um, it's really. Very impressively done. But then on top of that, you know, I br- I make our characters role player. Although you don't have to own role player, you can just the game comes with pre-rolled characters if you want. But you can bring in one of your characters. You start going on this big epic twelve uh, mission adventure that is definitely has replayability baked in. I talk about it in the uh, final thoughts of my video. And you, your character levels up, and um, you know goes on lots of adventures. And it everything here. There's nothing here that reinvents the wheel. But everything here is done so well. And what I appreciate most is, while this game is not near as puzzly as its predecessor, Role Player, when you have to uh, complete a task, like, I don't know, uh, climb a cliff face, or um, you know use a feat of strength to lift up boulders, or whether you're fighting bad guys, which you'll do a fair bit of time, this game isn't just roll to resolve and see what happens. There's almost kind of like a little mini-game built in, where all the cards that represent your equipment and skills and traits, these are things you earned in the original role player, by the way, get new functions that let you roll a bunch of dice and then manipulate them, and everybody in the party is manipulating the same pool of dice, trying to complete the objective, it was a really fun dice manipulation little mini puzzle. I, I don't know that you'd want to, you couldn't make a whole game out of that, but it's so much better than all of role player, most of role player adventures contemporaries of, oh, this is what happened. Okay, it says we have to do a strength test. Let's roll some, and oh, I failed the strength test. Not so here. It's so much more clever. There is, I mean, this game is going to be a monstrously huge hit. It's on Kickstarter. By the way, oh shoot, I forgot to mention, uh, this was a paid preview. Um, did I mention before? Have I had any other paid previews here? Uh, both of Ryan and Shay's videos were paid previews. I feel like it's really important because I know some people listen to this on the Kickstarter, or on the on the, what do you call it, the podcast, so they're not actually seeing the stuff on screen. Nope, everything else. I did not have to rewind. All those were commercial games. Yes. Uh, I should edit this out later, but I don't edit nothing, folks. Roleplayer Adventure. Roleplayer Adventure is a paid Kickstarter preview. So my personal subjective opinions, you should bear that in mind. But I was very impressed. Go check out the run-through for number nine, Roleplayer Adventure. Then on to number eight. The Age of Atlantis. And folks, I gotta say, I don't know where to start. This is such a huge game. Uh, Not only just in terms of its uh, table real estate, but in terms of its scope and its breadth and its ambition. Uh, But before I get too far, please remember, folks, this was a paid Kickstarter preview. So, I mean, what did we think? Well, at heart, this is a pretty straightforward worker placement game, but you're using dice for your worker placements. You don't roll them. Instead, you put them face up, indicating what their current morale is. And the interesting thing is, you send a worker out to a building, out to the barracks to train for, or or to build things, or, or whatever it might be. And after they've done that action, 
you can kind of nudge them. You can literally rotate the die and have them go again. You can even do it again and push them into the depths of exhaustion and despair so that you can get maximum um, usage out of these workers. You know, get three actions for only one placement? Yes, please. But here's the problem. We are overseeing the uh, development of the ancient city of Atlantis. And Atlantis is watched over by Poseidon. And Poseidon does not like it when we don't take care of the citizens of Atlantis. And so so at the end of a round, when you take all your workers back, if any of them are literally demoralized because you push them too hard, well, your standing with Poseidon will drop. Which isn't a problem immediately, but there can be certain events that will make him unleash his fury. And you don't want to be on his bad side then. Never mind the fact that if you keep working your way up in his good graces, you'll actually get a huge amount of points. So that's one interesting thing about the worker placement. You know, the morale system. But those dice have even more to give because they represent two different types of citizens. Regular peasants who have to stay within the walled city of Atlantis uh, when it was still on land. It hasn't sunk, by the way, yet because this is ancient antiquity. But you can upgrade your dice to turn them into full Atlanteans. And the Atlanteans are able to travel out in the landscape and go out and harvest resources and build more buildings. Because Atlantis itself will fill up very quickly as players build more and more buildings. This is the type of worker placement game where at the start, there's really not a board. Players have to build up the infrastructure of this city so that they can actually use all the buildings they built. And of course, players share these buildings with each other. Once I make a temple, it's open season. Anybody could go use it. And maybe I'll never be able to get my foot back in the door because everybody else is jumping in on my temple action or whatever it might be. Although every player does have their own very unique building that only they can use that gives them really cool asymmetrical game-changing power. So that's all very nice. Um... But, uh, you know, the dice are one thing. What's even better is the amazing miniatures. Poseidon himself is represented by this awesome, I don't know, he must be four or five inches tall, just sits in the middle of the board, looking out over the landscape, pointing in a direction every round, chosen randomly, that is his blessed part of the city. If you do your worker placement there, you'll get big points. But I don't want to go there, I want to go over there. Well, it's Poseidon, what are you going to do? Um, but, the interesting thing is, on the outskirts of the board, at the end of every round, invade will show up from Rome and from Greece because they are jealous. They want all of our riches. They want all our technology. Because it turns out this uh, game tells the story that all the ancient mythological creatures that we know of today as, you know, legends and whatnot, turns out those were mechs that the ancient Atlanteans were able to build and use to defend themselves. And it's so cool to build these gigantic pegasuses and cerebuses and minotaurs and whatnot, and then put your little worker dice on them, and they ride them around the countryside, routing all the invading enemies who keep coming. It's kind of a similar way to, um, oh, what do you call it? Castle Panic. Um, and the interesting thing is, if those invaders ever make it to the city, or ever make it to any of the buildings we've built out in the countryside, Poseidon doesn't like that. And he gets very angry, and he will flood. He will unleash a torrent to take out all those invaders, but he'll also inadvertently take out all the buildings as well. And when he gets mad, that's when he strikes at us, if we haven't take, taken good care of the people as well. So he is a fickle god, and you've got to try and, you know 
balance. So much stuff going on. Uh, the tech trees that come with this game are amazing. There are so many different ways you could level up every time you play. It's going to go in a different direction based on the opportunities that you create for your opponents when you build buildings and that they create for you. Even the invaders, because sometimes they don't come with more troops. They come with little worker placement spots that you can go out and interact with the invaders instead of fighting them. It's really sharp. And the one thing I was worried about is that it would be overwhelming. Because this game definitely has the potential to throw you into the deep end of the pool and say, well, you figure out how to swim. Because there's so much going on. I mean, it's it's you know comparable to a Mind Clash game, like, like Anachrony or, or Tricarian or... Uh, Tail Tihuacan, another uh, dice worker placement game. There's so much stuff. But what I love more than anything else, and there's a lot to love in this game, is the fact that developers realized they had made a very big, open sandboxy game that could be hugely intimidating for first-time players. So the rules suggest it's an option. You don't have to do it. As part of setup, everybody gets dealt a strategy card. And these strategy cards will give you hints and clues as to how best to um, you know win. Hey, in age one, if you're going for the military strategy, here's what you really need to focus on, and by the time you get to age three, this is what you should be able to do. But if you're going for the resource-heavy strategy, then you really want to focus on these particular buildings, and maybe if somebody else builds them, you want to do this. I love this. This is so smart. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we both ended up getting a different one, and we started playing, and right from the beginning, we felt a sense of confidence in our decisions. We knew that even if we didn't know everything, all the permutations, all the long-term effects, the knock-on, um, you know, uh, causal chains of our actions, we felt like we were making good decisions because we had a strategy, because the game helped us and gave us one. There's a lot of neat innovations in Age of Atlantis, and if there's one that I hope the developers take from the game more than anything else, it's this idea of, help me help you, game! Help me feel smarter! Help me have more fun so that I want to come back and play again, instead of just being overwhelmed and, you know, you know tossed out to sea. I love it. There is so much great. The game production is amazing. The game design is really sharp. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I really, really love this core structural idea of, of accessibility. I mean, not for nothing, the rules themselves, they're like Martin Wallace brass short. They're only like three or four pages long. You can sum up the core rules really quickly and easily, and then just go deeper and deeper and deeper, because the game, oh, it is bottomless with all the amazing stuff you can do. And that's The Age of Atlantis. And now, on to my number seven. Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons. So, this is a cooperative game where Princess Diana, Wonder Woman, and her fellow Amazonian warriors are trying to protect Themyscira, Paradise Island, from any number of problems. In fact, the game comes with three different bosses, each one, whichever one you play in a given game. Not significantly, but somewhat changes the uh, the challenge you face of how problems spread over the island as we run around trying to stay one step ahead of them, fighting fires all over the place while completing whatever objective we need to do. It's very pandemic-esque. This is the latest in a long line of games that owes its core structure and gameplay to pandemic. So, with that in mind, what makes this one stand out from all of the others? There's one thing that's very, very special. At the beginning of a round, players draw five cards, and those cards are going to determine what they can do. They're multi-use cards that can give you strength or speed or wisdom or whatever, and when you play a card, you have to decide, am I going to use it for strength or wisdom? Because it might have those two stats, and a lot of times the cards have special effects on them as well. Here's the deal. Every player is going to get dealt five cards, three of which are going to get played over the course of the round, but two... Uh, what is it? Um... 
I'm trying to remember, because I got this actually wrong in the run-through, folks. Although I, I, I clarify that in the run-through. Yeah, yeah. Two of the five cards are face-up, and everybody can see. Everybody can see two of the cards everybody's got. The other three cards are face-down. And here's the problem. Everybody's got their two cards. You know, so you and I are playing. Between us, we know of four of the potential cards. Each of us is going to have to play three. And we can start planning, oh, you're going to be really strong. That means you should go over there and fight the cheetah. And I'm really wise. That means I should go over there and start trying to recruit more warriors or, you know, or, uh, or, or try to um, you know, cure the wounded uh, you know, soldiers that are over there or whatever. But we can't make perfect plans because we only know what two of our three cards are. The other three are face down. We can't look at them yet. So we make the best plan we can, knowing that after we're done planning, we're going to have to zip our lips and not communicate anymore. At that point, we can look at the remaining three cards, and then we program what our character is going to do. First, I'll travel up north. Then, I'll recruit some warriors. And then finally, I'll fight Cheetah before she runs away. You know, or you know, whatever. Or, or Ares, the god of war. That might be the plan I make for myself. And that might be what we discussed. And I might say, oh, look, of the three cards I got, this is exactly what I needed. I'm going to stick to the plan we talked about. But what you'll find often happens is, when you reveal those three cards, oh, yeah, that plan's not going to work. I did not get the card I needed. Or, oh my gosh, I got this card? This one's even better! I should jettison the plan we talked but I can't talk to you about this. And what I can start thinking is, okay, I know what you're going to do, because you said what you're going to do. And if I, if you say what you're, and that means you're going to be over there at the Colosseum on the second um, round of our action phase, that means I could change my plans, move over there, and double the strength of your action. And then, I mean, that would be huge. And I could let Cheetah live. I could let her fight her another day. And so, you know, I have to make these plans in secret. And then once everybody's made their final choice, and hopefully, and you know, it's always best when some people stuck to the plan and other people went off and did their own thing. And then we reveal and everybody's surprised and hopefully it comes together. Hopefully it doesn't fall apart. Sometimes you just want to stick to the plan and you can't. So you have to change it because you didn't get the cards you needed. This core imperfect communication system is one of the most clever cooperative structures I have ever seen. And I love it to bits. You know, Jen and I were both tickled pink. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that's really nice here. The different Amazon warriors that you can play as have different special powers. It's really cool. They delivered three specific bosses that changed the game up in not insignificant ways. Um, but that's almost beside the point. The reason this game rates so high comes in at number seven is because that imperfect communication is is one of the smartest designs I have seen in years. And I hope that other developers... You know, it drives a thoroughly, uh, otherwise okay, cooperative Pandemic clone. If it didn't have this, I'd be like, yeah, this is fine, but I don't see why I'd play this instead of Pandemic when it boils right down to it. But this game is special because of this. And... Uh, yeah, I hope it gets more expansions. I want to see more bosses. I want to see more special powers. I, I want to see the rest of the game you know, evolve beyond just firefighting, running around, trying to deal with stuff, and, and getting a little bit cooler as well. But I, you know, I, I'm picking nits here because my number seven, Wonder Woman, Challenge of the Amazons, really surprised us this month. Biggest surprise we've had in quite a while. Number seven, Wonder Woman, Challenge of the Amazons. Then moving on to number six, we have got Intrepid. Now, this was another paid preview. That's a good thing I'm remembering to say that. Um, so, what is it? This is a game where players control a group of international astronauts on the International Space Station. And wouldn't you know, there's a meteor shower. 
Although, as I understand it, I think there's going to be alternative missions as well. The prototype I played had a meteor shower, which you were constantly having to deal with. That you know, the, the space station was constantly getting hit, and modules were getting damaged, and we have to deal with that. Because even if there weren't a meteor shower, it's tough in space. You have to generate enough atmosphere, enough climate, you know, uh, uh, enough of uh, uh, nutrition to be able to stay alive. Because you'll die. It's a very unforgiving place, space. And that's what we're doing in this game. Every round, we have a bunch of dice, different amounts of dice, depending on what nationality you are, whether you're Canadian or UK or Malaysian or whatever. And every uh, player, whenever they take on a certain nationality, they get very cool, really super unique special abilities. Like, this game goes so far above and beyond in the asymmetric player powers arena. It's very, very impressive. I've seen some ideas in here I've never seen in another game. The Japan Japan one is particularly interesting, but anyway, um, we you know we, we, every round we're going to roll some dice and we're going to use the worker placement style. I can deploy dice to my modules or to a common set of modules in the center of the space station. You can deploy dice to yours or the center. We can also spend our dice on completing missions and all kinds of stuff. One of the big things we'll do though is, oh my gosh, I so desperately needed a five. Without a five, I can't activate this module, and we're going to starve. That's okay. You rolled a five. Or more to the point, you rolled a three that you can use in this module to turn your two by flipping it into a five. And then some of the modules allow us to transfer dice back and forth to each other. So then you can give me that five. I can activate it. We don't starve. and um, But we're probably still going to freeze to death because now I've got to deal with the climate issues. Oh, man. Uh, the thing I love most about this game is after all the dice are rolled, Unlike most cooperative games, there's no turn structure here. It's not a real-time game, but it just means we can resolve our dice in any order we want. And I find that to be so liberating and it makes me want it makes me you know, chafe at the shackles that other cooperative games put you in. And I'm including Pandemic here, my favorite uh, game of all time, or Gloomhaven, where, oh, it'd be really great if I could do this thing because then I could help you and do your thing. Nope, gotta stick to player order, not here. We make the order, and that makes us feel clever. It makes us feel like we can come up... There's a, there's a solution to this problem. We just got to science the S out of it. And um, I, I love that, and I want to see that. Board game developers, designers, publishers, you're on notice. More cooperative games where players are not bound by a rigid player order structure, where players can you know, resolve their actions in any order they want, because that truly fosters cooperation and freedom in a way that is just so liberating. And that's definitely the biggest strength in what game has a ton of strengths. My number six of the month, which I think is still on Kickstarter right now, Intrepid. Then we move on to number five, Overlord. Another paid Kickstarter preview. And uh, this is the sequel to Boss Monster, set in the same uh, 8-bit video game fantasy universe, although this is nothing like that game. Uh, this is a tile-drafting and tile-laying game. And it's... You know, it's not entirely dissimilar from a tiny town sort of situation because you have a very tiny little um, realm that you are trying to fill up. You are the boss monster. You are trying to fill up your realm with forests and graveyards and 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 mines and caverns and fill those full of monsters um, because you're, eventually uh, it doesn't happen in this game, but some. Link-like hero is going to come along and try to uh, you know explore your realm and hopefully get killed. You're trying to make the best realm you can. 
and you're doing it through tile drafting. The interesting thing is, on your turn, you're going to draft an environment tile that hopefully is going to be perfect, exactly what you want. Exact, you know, the the perfect swamp to go right next to my other swamp to double the points. You know, that kind of a thing. But the problem is, when I grab that swamp, each of the uh, environment tiles comes with a randomly selected monster tile. And wouldn't you know it, that swamp comes with a skeleton. Skeletons don't want to be in swamps. Skeletons want to be in graveyards. But if I take those two, I've got to put the skeleton in the swamp, which means the witch isn't going to be able to get in the swamp like I want her to. And that simple little restriction creates so much angst because I mentioned tiny towns before because this is a tiny realm, a four by four. It this game is I actually played my run through all the way just from start to finish. I very rarely do that. It was so quick. And it just from beginning to end, it is full of fun decisions. It's very, very rare that you get that, oh, it's a it's a skeleton in a cemetery, of course. I'm gonna take that. Most of the time, you have to make a ton of tough compromises. Because even if you can't get the right monster in the right place, if that monster is in the same row or column uh, as monsters of its of its genome, skeletons like to group together. Even if they're stuck in swamps and forests, if they're in the same row or column, they can still be worth points. And yeah, there's a surprising amount of depth. And that's no surprise, because this is from the designer. Actually, he co-designed this one. Designer of Calico, which was easily one of the five best games I played last year. It hasn't come out yet, but it was on Kickstarter and it destroyed us with just how amazing it was. And Overlord is nowhere near as crunchy and heavy and puzzly as that. Overlord has a nice light buzz. It's kind of relaxing, but still thinky and just a, a delight to play. Maybe in part because I grew up in the 70s and so um, you know my teen years were spent playing these eight bit adventure games, as was Jen's, so we both have a fond nostalgia for the subject matter, but even if it hadn't been that, even if this had been set in just like a modern metro city, which it could have been, the game would still be phenomenal. It's a delight. It's uh, still on Kickstarter right now. It's my number five of the month, Overlord. Then we got number four, Roll Camera, another paid Kickstarter. This was a good month for Kickstarter games, I gotta say. And like I said, it was a paid preview, so as always, take my opinions with a grain of salt, but Wow, I love this. Now, I should say, I've only gotten a chance to play this solo. Remember I said right up front, Jen's been MIA? Um, I didn't get a chance to play this till after she left, but I loved it as a solo game, and I can't wait for her to get back because I suspect I will love it as a two-player game as well. What we're doing in this game is, um, on your turn, you've got, I think it's six dice that represent the, the film crew that you're trying to use to build sets, film scenes, edit them together, and uh, solve a non-stop series of problems. This game truly captures the theme of movie making, and it does it so well. It's funny, it's very well presented, really charming art style, but um, you know, folks, I actually I love the movies, and I worked on the video game, the movies, for Activision and Lionhead many years ago. So I have kind of a fondness for this subject matter as well. And uh, I've just got to say... I, well, I can certainly say it's a great solo game. And um, I think it'll be great as a multiplayer game as well, because probably the coolest thing about it, one of the worker placement spots you can go to with any die. Sometimes if you roll director dice, you got to use them in certain spots or, or you know, set designers. But you know, any die could go to the call a meeting. 
And you might think, I don't want to call a meeting. Meetings are the bane of my existence. I have to do them at work. They're terrible. The cool thing is, if on a player's turn, they call a meeting, everybody has a hand of idea cards. And when you call a meeting, you play one idea to the pot, as do two other players. In a solo game, two are drawn randomly. Only one of those ideas will actually be acted upon. One of the ideas will get discarded, and one of them will go into the to-do list, which means it becomes a new worker placement spot that we can activate later. This is so brilliant, because on my turn, I could be desperate for something, and I could just get this one... I just need one more actor! And somebody else says, call a meeting, call a meeting, I've got an idea. That's literally what we do. I, I put a worker on call a meeting, they play their idea card, everybody agrees, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Somebody else gets the opportunity to put their idea into a worker placement spot. I can then use another die to activate that worker placement spot, use the other idea, and like I said, I've only played it solo, but... I've, I have been definitely saved by the ideas that come from my drawing blind from the deck when I call a meeting too. So, this game is phenomenal. If you like behind-the-scenes movies, if you like cooperative gameplay, and if you like dice worker placement, this game ticks all of those boxes so well. It is so wonderfully rich and thematic. It's my number four of the month. It is Roll Camera. Then we go on to number three, and that is uh, Concordia, the Egypt map. Now, I should say, it's actually a twofer. If you seek out the Egypt map, it comes with Egypt and Crete, uh, if I recall correctly. And to be fair, I have not played the Crete map. The interesting thing about it is, apparently it is the smallest map ever, the tightest map. So you're really, even as a two-player game, going to spend a lot more time building on top of each other. But I was really excited to try the Egypt map because... It comes with this new concept of the Nile. The tides of the Nile are constantly moving, encouraging players to build in specific spots to get discounts. And uh, and then the tile moves on, uh, the the tide moves on. And so there's this extra thing. The the world is alive in a tiny way because you know. I'm not going to mince words. Concordia is a very dry game. It is bone dry. It is desert dry. Um, but the fact that the Nile is a thing that you can anticipate as it you know it waxes and wanes really adds just a little bit of extra oomph to Concordia, which is already one of the uh, greatest Euro games of all time. Period. And Egypt, I'm not saying it's the best. But uh, you know that Nile system is not just a gimmick. It really does change things up. And you know, I mean, Matt Gertz and company—they seem to still keep coming up with new maps. And I hope they can continue to come up with cool new ideas like what they've done here. Because Jen and I had a great time, even though Jen had a meltdown, and I pretty much had to finish her game four because the game just got so complex near the end. But man, Concordia, as always, is phenomenal. And the Concordia, the Egypt map, was my number three of the month. Then we go on to number two, and it's Marvel Champions Black Widow! Hooray! Folks, I love Marvel Champions so much, I break my rule. I've talked about this before. I get so many games sent to me by publishers every month that I feel like I have to get covered, you know, because they review copies of games, that I don't buy games anymore. Because if I buy a game, that means it goes right over there on the shelf. You can't see it. It's off screen. But, and it'll sit there forever because I'll never get a chance to play it because there's always new review copies I have to spend. Um, And... That's true for Marvel Champions as well. Um, uh, Asmodee, Fancy Flight, they are not sending me review copies of this stuff. But I love Marvel Champions so much. So much that I'm buying these myself and playing them. Even if Jen isn't available, I'm playing them solo. And yeah, 
I finally got Black Widow after many, many months of waiting because it came out in Europe a long time ago, but uh, because of, you know, uh, COVID issues uh, and, you know, international shipping lanes and all that. It was super delayed here in the States, but I finally got it and it was amazing. I think Black Widow is my favorite character yet. Um, her whole dual life spy um, thing she's got going on is so brilliantly thematic and, you know, her threat mitigation, everything about her, um, you know, the, the, this concept, she has this concept of keyword prep that a lot of her cards are preparation for dealing with something that's coming in the future and it's so satisfying. I mean, Marvel Champions is already great, and Black Widow elevates it even more. Doctor Strange is coming soon. I believe it's in the mail now. I'll probably talk about it next month. Oh, I love Marvel Champions so much. It's my number two of the month. Marvel Champions, Black Widow. But, folks, let's talk about the number one. Of course, it's Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. Which, um, man, I did a lot of coverage for this. I did a run-through of, uh, of a scenario from it, which you really don't need to watch because... Nothing has re very little about core Gloomhaven gameplay has changed with Jaws of the Lion, which is a standalone game. You do not have to own Gloomhaven to get Jaws of the Lion. And in fact, if you've ever thought about going out and getting Gloomhaven, I strongly suggest you put that on hold and get Jaws of the Lion instead. Because what makes this standalone game special, it comes with four characters, 25 missions, a bunch of creatures, some old, some new, uh, you know, a lot of items, all that stuff. You know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of gameplay and very replayable as well. Um, and also completely backwards compatible. You can take the heroes out of regular Gloomhaven, bring them into Jaws of the Lion, or the Jaws of the Lion heroes and take them into Gloomhaven. So it's it's totally cross-compatible with all the other Gloomhaven stuff. Here's why I say this is where you should start. The first four missions, essentially the first five missions, but really the first four, really, really the first three missions, the fourth to a certain extent, the first three missions you play through this game are a brilliantly designed tutorial that brings you step-by-step, step, inch by inch, into the world of Gloom Gloomhaven is an incredibly complex, daunting, Byzantine game full of a million little rules. And you know, if you go out and get Gloomhaven and you are you are you drop this whatever it is, 50, 60 page manual in your lap and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Where do I even start? This is so hard. And then the very the first mission you ever play in Gloomhaven is also a monstrously difficult mission that most players will lose several times in a row. It's just like they, Gloomhaven throws you into the deep end of the pool, um, not knowing how to swim, and says you don't need a life for um, you don't need a life vest. Sink or swim, it's on you. That was a mistake. Gloomhaven, in spite of how popular it is, is not very welcoming to new players. Jaws of the Lion is beautifully designed to baby step you into it. After you have finished the third mission, you're ready for the full Gloomhaven experience, and that's what it continues to give you. And it's a masterclass, folks. All other publishers have to study this game and see how they have wrangled one of the most complex, very difficult, very intimidating um, gameplay systems the industry has ever seen. And I'm not going to say it's made it a gateway. I'm not going to be, that's, that'd be crazy, but it definitely made it um, approachable for anybody who has the ambition and the desire to play what is currently the number one game in board game history, because it's the number one on Board Game Geek, and Board Game Geek is the number one board game site in the world. It's a, not exactly, uh, it's, it's stretching it a bit, but still, Gloomhaven is amazing. And Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is even more amazing because of how it brings you in 
like a good friend. And I love it. Never mind the fact that Jen and I are just enjoying it. It's really good, solid Gloomhaven content as well. If you're a Gloomhaven expert, you can literally skip the first three missions and just go right into the full game and you won't feel like you're missing anything. Everything about this is phenomenal. And that is my number one game of the month, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. And folks, um, we have made it once again. What am I at here? I am at 47 minutes for 17 games and um, I think I need to go take some more anti-inflammatories. I've gotten a little uh, worked up here and I'm putting a little bit of stress on my ankle and uh, I think I need to go lie down for a little bit. But as always, uh, check back in roughly four weeks and I will be rounding up for you once again. And until then, folks, uh, so long. Uh, thanks for watching. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.